My name's David. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad that y'all are here today. Uh, a couple of things and we'll get started. I wanted to say this about the dinner on the square on Friday. If you're new, uh, if it was me, there would be very few things that I would enjoy less than showing up at a place where I don't know anybody and going out to eat with them. So I hear that, but I would encourage you, if you're at all interested in, in connecting with other people in the church, um, to come on Friday. We'll meet here at 6. We have child care here. Um, it's $5 for one child, 7 for two. There's a multi-child discount and a nine, I think, for three. If you have more than that, we'll just, nine's enough. You've got bigger fish to fry than, uh, than that. But uh, come, we'll, we get in groups of six, and then we just go eat at restaurants here. That's it. Nothing heavy. Um, I'd encourage you to come. And then the men's Bible study, six o'clock in the morning doesn't do anything for me either. But I do know it is important to be in uh, relationships with other folks. And so if you're not in relationships with, with other people who love you, and who love God, I would encourage you to, to at least think about coming to that group, just to check it out and see um, see if it helps you or not. We've been in a series for like a long time about uh, becoming more like Jesus. We've used this vase over here as our kind of our visual aid and said, this is what God wants us to be. His desire for all of us is to conform us into his image. And we all start as this lump of clay, and we're all in some... We're somewhere along the continuum of a lump of clay and this vase. And we've said that our major responsibility is really just to respond to God. That's what we do. He's the potter, we're the clay. He shapes us. We just need to be shaped. We don't, we're responding to Him. We don't necessarily need to initiate anything. We don't need to try to do anything. We just need to respond to His work in our life. And we've looked at some specific things that we can do. We've said that kind of the thing with this shaping is God is going to do it. And we give him tools to shape us if we're responsive to him. If we're not responsive to him, we get hard and he uses a hammer and a chisel and that's no fun for anybody. But if we are responsive, there are things that we can do that allow him to shape us. We looked at giving, at worship, and at prayer. And today we're going to look at what is to me the most practical and the most difficult thing we can do, which is love, particularly to love other people. I'm not sure that we're ever more like Jesus than when we choose to love other people. This is from a book called Unchristian. It came out, I think, uh, in 2007. This is, I'm just going to read through some of the points of this book. Uh, the main group studied in this book is, quote-unquote, outsiders, those looking at the Christian faith from outside. This group includes atheists, agnostics, those affiliated with a faith other than Christianity, and other unchurched adults who are not born-again Christians. Uh, the main group that they studied were two generations um, People born between 1965 and 2002, I think that captures maybe most of you in this room and most of the people who you know. Um, each generation uh, has more and more of these outsiders. That, that number of people who are outsiders is growing. This is only done in the United States, by the way. And this is kind of the perception of Christianity among those outside of the Christian faith. In 1996, 85% of outsiders were favorable, favorable toward Christianity's role in society. That's good. Now, however, nearly uh, 40% of the young outsiders claim to have a bad impression of present-day Christianity. Among those who expressed an opinion about born-again Christians, negative opinions outnumbered positive by more than three to one. Among, among those aware of the term evangelical, the views are extraordinarily negative. 49% of the people have a negative view of 
evangelicals, and 3% have a positive view. Born again, just for terminology's sake, those are people, if you're born again, that means you believe you have to make a profession of faith. You have to trust in Jesus in order to be saved. You're not saved by baptism or by going to church, but by actually um, making a decision for Jesus. And then evangelical has some other stuff after it, primarily the idea that you have a responsibility to share your faith with other people. The three most common perceptions of present-day Christianity, you're going to love this, anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. 91% of these outsiders see Christianity as anti-homosexual, 87% as judgmental, and 85% are hypocritical. Of the top 12 perceptions of Christianity, nine of the 12 were negative. The most common favorable impression is that Christianity teaches the same basic idea as other religions, which isn't even true. Um, So our number one positive is actually not even true. Um, Nine out of every ten outsiders say they know Christians personally. Most of them have at least five or an average of five friends who are believers. Um, Their impressions are forged through mainly through their church experience and their relationships with Christians. Um, 20% of them, regardless of age, admitted they've had a bad experience in a church or with a Christian that gave them a negative image of Jesus Christ. So that's 50 million adults in this country say they've had a bad experience with church or with a Christian that's given them a negative image of Jesus. Such hurtful experiences are part of the stories of nearly um, half of all people who are atheists, agnostics, or members of another faith. So hypocritical, 85% of young outsiders consider that present-day Christianity is hypocritical. Half of churchgoers say that Christianity is hypocritical. Young outsiders generally do, generally do not get the impression that Christians have good intentions when it comes to trying to convert them. Most reject the idea that Christians show genuine interest in them as individuals. This was one of the largest gaps in research. Most Christians think that they're coming across as genuine. Most of the people on the other end say that we're not. Um, of the 20 attributes that we assessed, both positive and negative, as related to Christianity, the perception of being anti-homosexual is at the top of the list. Only one-fifth of young outsiders believe that an active faith helps people live a better, more fulfilling life. Two-thirds of young outsiders say faith is boring, a description embraced by um, 25% of the young churchgoers as well. Um, In our survey, this is great, we asked young people to identify the best-known Christians. Among the top five were the Pope, mentioned by 16%, George Bush by 13%, Billy Graham by 17%, Jesus at 9%. So Jesus is number four on the list of uh, top five Christians, people who are associated with Christianity. Three-quarters of young outsiders and half of young churchgoers describe present-day Christianity as too involved in politics. Nearly two-thirds say that uh, young, excuse me, nearly two-thirds perceive that the political efforts of conservative Christians are a big problem facing America. Nine out of ten young outsiders say that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. Most Christian young people told our interviewers that our faith, Christian faith, seems to be focused too much on other people's faults. So that's something to make you smile here in the morning. Now listen to this. This is from uh, a guy named Alvin Schmidt who wrote a book called Under the Influence, How Christianity Transformed Civilization. Uh, He's a retired professor of sociology, um, I think from the University of Nebraska. If Jesus had never lived, our world would be a very different place. The positive impact of Jesus Christ and his followers on civilization is tremendous. This impact includes the following. Sanctification of human life. 
Christianity's high view of human life has imposed infanticide, that's killing babies, child abandonment, abortion, human sacrifices, suicide, and ethnic cleansing. Elevation of sexual morality, I'm not going to read the thing on that. Um, Freedom and dignity of women, Christianity has elevated the status of women uh, in nearly every country. Charity and compassion, Christian love has resulted in voluntary care for the poor and needy, sick, orphaned, and aged. Uh, Hospitals and health care, Christianity brought forth the initiation and development of hospitals, medical nursing, and health care organizations and facilities for the benefit of all people. Institutional education, Christianity greatly influenced education, including provision of equal opportunity. Um, The little footnote says, um, 92% of U.S. colleges and universities existing in 1932 have been founded by Christian organizations. These include Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, which were all originally theological schools. Dignity of labor and economic freedom. Christianity brought dignity to labor and promoted economic freedom throughout the world. Uh, The Christian worldview uh, provided the stimulus for the development of science. Liberty and justice, the Christian view of human equality and divine law, has resulted in the promotion of individual freedom, freedom of religion and justice for all, the abolition of slavery. We've talked about that before. Art and architecture. Music, Christianity has inspired some of the most beautiful, majestic, and moving music. Literature, same thing, and the transformed lives of millions and millions of people. So that's our researched, I didn't give you all the footnotes, that's our researched view of what Christianity has done. And what I read at the beginning was the perception that people have. And so my question is, why is there such a huge gap between the impact of Jesus of Christianity and of Christians, and the perception, particularly, of Christianity and Christians. Most people don't have a negative view of Jesus. Um, they don't know Jesus. They just they have kind of fuzzy feelings about him that most people would not have a negative view of who he is. Why is there such a huge gap between how Christianity has impacted our world and how people perceive Christianity to have impacted our world? Those I could have been reading to you about two different things. If I read both of those things and didn't give you Christianity, you'd think I was talking about two different movements. What one has done is so positive, and the perception of that movement is so negative among people on the outside, it's really stark. And the thing I was thinking about, I wonder if the biggest reason is that we don't love very well. That's the biggest, I think that's the reason for the discrepancy. We don't do a good job at loving other people. We're experts in a lot of things, but we're not experts in loving. That's not a criticism. I'm I'm in there, too. We just don't spend a lot of time on love. Like, if I were to ask you, think about the last time you intentionally did something out of love for another. How far back do you have to go in your week? If if I were to say, picture your most important relationships. When was the last time you did something intentionally out of love for the people, for those people, however big your circle is, spouse, kids, employer, employee, neighbors, friends, whoever's in that circle. When was the last time you did something consciously saying, I'm doing this out of love for them? When was the last time just in general you did something where you were consciously saying, I'm doing this out of love? Not because you just fell into it and you took out the trash and that made your wife happy. The last time you consciously said, I'm doing something. Which again, that's not a criticism. It's not something that we think about. We're experts in a lot of things, and we spend a lot of time on a lot of things, but we don't spend a lot of time on love, and most of us are not experts when it comes to love. We know we're supposed to love people, but actually loving people is an area where a lot of us fall down. 
that's what we're going to look at today. Again, I think it's the most difficult thing that we're, that, that we're supposed to do. Prayer, worship, giving, all of that stuff is easy compared to loving other people. But I also think it's the most practical thing that we can do. It's practical not just in terms of impacting our community. It's practical in terms of shaping you. I'm not sure if anything will make you more like Jesus than trying to love people. I think there's a reason those of you who are married, like you have to do those vows and spend all this time and at the church saying, I'm going to love you, I'm going to love you back. Because it's really hard to do that for more than about, for some people, 10 minutes. For some people, the honeymoon lasts a little longer than that. It's hard. It's hard to enter into a long-term loving relationship. It's hard to carry that out through time, whether you're married to the person or not. All of you have parents. You know how hard that is to love them through time. That's the reason we do all this commitment stuff when we're getting married, because it's a big deal to say, I'm going to love you forever. This is uh, Luke 10. You've heard this story a billion times. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? The lawyer answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. I'm a big summary statement guy and Luke 27 is a summary statement. Jesus answered, or This lawyer answered Jesus when he said, What am I supposed to do to, in, to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Well, what do you think? And the lawyer says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's a, that's a summary statement. There are two other times where Jesus uses that same summary statement. In Matthew uh, 22, I think it is, and in Mark 12. And one of the times in Matthew, he's responding to the question, what's the greatest commandment? And in Mark 12, he's responding to the question, uh, what is the most important commandment? So, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the greatest commandment? What's the most impor- important commandment? They all get the same answer. Love God and love people. That's a summary statement of everything that God requires of us. We've said that before. You want to condense all of this into four words. It's love God, love people. It's a bumper sticker. That's the, that's the summary of what it means to be a Christian. That's, a, that's the central idea of Christianity. It's to love God and to love people. Now, obviously, there's a lot of stuff underneath that, starting with the fact that we can't do that on our own. But that's a summary of what it means to be a Christian. It means... A Christian is someone who loves God and loves people. We need to become experts in love. So what does it look like to love people? Again, we've all heard that, love, love, whatever. What does it actually look like? 1 John 4.10 says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What you see there is the character of love. What love says is, I'm going to do what's best for you no matter what it costs me. John 3.16, you all know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The idea there is love is saying, I'm going to do what's best for you no matter what it costs me. Even if it costs me my son, I'm going to do what's best for you. And the best thing for you is to be in a relationship with me. And the only way to make that happen is for my son to come and live and die. And so that's what I'm going to do. We've said before, the definition of love, the easiest Simplest definition is to do what's best for somebody else regardless of what it costs you. That's biblical love. Do what's best for someone else regardless of what it costs you. So what does that really look like? 
This is 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard this before. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Let me read it to you this way, changing the words a little bit. Love takes a long time before fuming. Love gives gracious service to others. Love is not jealous and does not promote rivalry and competition. Love does not act like a windbag calling attention to itself. Love does not puff itself up. Love does not behave in an indecent or shameful manner. Love is tactful and would not do anything to cause another to blush. Love does not look out for its own interests. Love is not touchy. Love doesn't keep score. Love rejoices in things that reflect the character of God and doesn't rejoice in things that do not reflect the character of God. Love is like a roof, always providing cover for the object. Love hopes and trusts the motives and actions of others are pure. Love has an inexhaustible capacity to endure despite the ingratitude, bad conduct, and problems that come with living life with other people. When the motives of others prove to be impure, love bears it with no resentment. Love never gives up. That's what we're, that's it. When Jesus says, love other people, love God and love other people, that's the character of what he's talking about. It isn't romantic comedy stuff. This is real and it's solid and it's strong. It's not mushy at all. We've talked about that before. This is Luke. Let me go back. Verse 29. But this lawyer wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said that a man was going down from Jericho to, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. So the guy says... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? And the guy says, well, I've got to love God and love people. Jesus says, great, you've got it. And then what this lawyer does is he's trying to figure out where the fence is. So he says, who's my neighbor? He needs to know, well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, well, tell me who my neighbor is. Again, he's looking to draw a boundary. I love these people. I don't have to love these people. Again, he's no offense to lawyers, but he's thinking like a lawyer. He wants to know in the contract, well, who exactly do I have to love in order to inherit eternal life? Sometimes we do the same thing. Who am I responsible for? How far am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to love everybody? That's the question this lawyer's asking. How far does it go? Who all am I supposed to love? And if you notice at the end, Jesus has turned the question completely on his head. He says the question is not, who is your neighbor? The question is, are you a neighbor? That's the question. Are you a neighbor? Not who is your neighbor. He basically says your neighbor is anybody you see who's in need which opens up a whole mess for those of us that have cable TV, and we can see needs all around the world. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Anyone you see who has needs, that's your neighbor. And so the question becomes, are you a neighbor to them? Are you 
loving them. Romans uh, 13, 9 and 10 says this, the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, you've got this summary statement. You want to know how you're supposed to treat people, you're supposed to love them, that's it. Again, it's a bumper sticker. A.W. Tozer was a pastor and an author back in the 50s. He said this, the idea of love is a beautiful thing as long as it does not demand that we put it into practice on some particular person. The idea of love is a beautiful thing as long as it does not demand that we put it into practice on some particular person. That's where a lot of us... The idea of love is nice, just don't make me actually love somebody. Or don't make me actually love that person. I'll love that person because they love me back. Don't make me love that person because they're rude or they smell or whatever it is that keeps me from wanting to love them. If love is the only thing that God requires, then you could say sin is anything that we do that's not loving. Or any opportunity that we have to love that we don't do. That would be, people talk about sins of commission, things that we do, and sins of omission, things we should do that we don't. Sins of commission, anything that we do that's not out of love, omission, any time that we have an opportunity to love and we don't. Those would be sin. And we know Jesus never sinned, so you could say, rightfully, that everything, Jesus loved every opportunity he had. And everything Jesus ever did was loving. First John, I think it's 4, 8, says God is love. So you can take from that everything that God does is loving. Now, if you read some of the Old Testament, that might be hard for you to fathom. You read Judges and you're reading about him slaughter, or Joshua and him telling the Israelites to wipe all these people out. And you think, well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of love in there. But if you believe that the Bible is true and that God is love, then everything he does is a loving act. The question for us is how do we then understand that, which is another, we don't have time to get in that today. But if everything God does is loving, Jesus is God, everything he did, or he did, he did, he did is loving as well. And so you can begin to put kind of skin on the idea of what does it mean to love other people by looking at how Jesus treated other people. One of the first responses people had is that's going to make me a doormat. If I'm supposed to love everybody, then they're going to take advantage of me and I'm going to be a doormat. Jesus wasn't a doormat. He was strong. He's one of the strongest people who ever lived. He had a very clear understanding of who he was and what he was going to do and nothing got in his way. I used to think about this and think, well, if I'm supposed to... It's a, it's a warped view of love that says people get to do whatever they want. That's not love. That's permissiveness. That's not who God is, and that's not who you're supposed to be. If someone breaks into your house, the loving thing is not to let them steal all your stuff. That's not loving. You're allowing them to sin because stealing is a sin. Loving someone doesn't mean they get to trample all over you. It means you do what's best for them. And ultimately, the best thing for everybody is to be in a, in a right relationship with God and to live righteously. So if people are doing things that are not righteous, the loving thing is not just to let them keep doing it. It's to let them know. You can read, there's several times in, you see it in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, where Jesus just rails on the Pharisees. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. He tells people to not listen to them, just, or not to do what they do, just to do what they say. I mean, he goes on and on. There's, they're, they're called the seven woes. Woe is you seven times. That doesn't sound like a very nice thing to say. What Jesus is trying to do is the loving thing, which is wake them up. They're about to miss God's activity in their midst. And Jesus has tried everything he can to get them to open their eyes. And they don't. And so he, 
he jumps them. And he does it out of love. So again, being being loving doesn't mean that you're a sissy. And it doesn't mean that people walk all over you and that people take advantage of you. It's not that. Loving people is doing what's best for them. And ultimately, the best thing for everybody is to be in a right relationship with the Lord. This is the last little portion of this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. So the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you think? Love God, love people. We just, he just does love people. That's the Samaritan thing. And then this is the love God portion you see with Mary and Martha. We love people, and that's huge, but it's secondary. The first commandment is to love God, and loving people flows out of that. Galatians 5:22 and 23 say, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Most people understand that to say the fruit of the Spirit, that singular fruit, is love. And all those other things are a description of love. Those are facets of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of those words describe love. It's not different fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and if the Holy Spirit lives within you, then He will produce the fruit of love. And those other things are just facets of love. And if you look at that passage in Galatians and that passage we read in 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see they're the same. They say the same stuff. One of them is more verbs and one of them is more nouns, but it's the same words. The stuff that love is patient and love is kind and the fruit is patience and kindness. And you can put those two things together. They're both describing love. And the Holy Spirit produces that within us. First, we love God and then we love people. And the reason we love God is because he first loved us, so that's where everything starts. Some people choose to live outside the love of God, and that's okay. That's a choice that he allows everybody to make. Just know what you're doing. If you choose to live outside of the love of God, then you're choosing to live outside of love, period, because he is love. And at some point, if this is me, and this is how much love I've got, is this mine? I just want to make sure I got below the label. Sorry. So if this is me, and that's where I am, right below the label, that's how much love I've got, just because I'm a great guy. So I'm about halfway full. But if I choose to live not within the love of God, I put the cap on, I'm living outside of God's love, that's all I've got. And I don't know how long that lasts, but that's all I've got. I'm married with three kids under eight. That's not going to last... Seriously, that's not going to get me very far. That's like Wednesday, and they're out of town till Tuesday. So, I've said before, I, I, t- I tell my wife this, I pray every day that God would help me love her. That might not make me a very good person that I have to pray for God to help me love her, but it's true because I'm selfish and I need help. I do the same thing with my children. I don't. It's not heroic to say I don't need God to help me love people. It's stupid. Because you're cutting yourself off from the source. That's what I'm doing. I put the cap on. I'm living outside of the one who is love, so that's all I've got. And as I spend time 
pouring it out on whoever it is I poured out, I'm putting the cap back on, I'm not getting refilled. It doesn't last very long. That's not how you're intended to live. This idea of loving other people, if you're like me, I'm a rule follower, I'm thinking, okay, I'm supposed to love other people, and you say, other people, that's anyone I meet who, who's in need, that is overwhelming. Seriously? That's what I'm supposed to do? However many hundred, tens of thousands from the cyclone, however many in the earthquake, plus the guys on the street, plus my family, people in the church, what am I supposed, seriously, what am I supposed to do? I'm like the lawyer, I want a fence. Show me, draw this, just show me where the, where the boundaries are. And I love the people inside the boundaries, but there's got to be some people outside also. And Jesus says, no. And it's because I've got it wrong. I'm thinking like this. It's up to me. And I know that my love supply is limited. But it's if I choose to live outside of the source, I've got the cap on. He can't give me anything else. We love because God first loved us. If you live like this, it's completely different. Then I can give whatever I've got to give. And I can, as long as the top's not on my bottle, God's free to give me more. And He's infinite. So he never runs out. He's got enough for all 6.2 billion people in the world to love all of the 6.2 billion people in the world. He's got that. He's got enough for all of us to love all of us. But it's got to be, he's got to be the source. If he's not and you're living like this, you're sunk. You can't do it and you know that. Some of you have more than me. Your bottle's full and you got a gallon jug because you're sweet people and you can go longer than I can go. This is about it for me. But that's okay. At some point, you're going to run out too because you're not God and you're not infinite. And at some point, you're going to run out. And whatever you do to recharge your batteries, if, it's still, if your cap's still on, it doesn't last for long. This is the only way to, to really recharge. It's to receive from the one who is love. We loved because he first loved us. Again, you can choose to live outside the love of God. That's your right. Because God loved us, he gave us the choice. And he says, you can choose, me or not. How can a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't send anybody to hell. He just lets us go if that's where we want to go. He says, because I love you, I'm going to give you the right to choose. The greater evil would be forcing you to do something against your will. So he allows the lesser evil, which is living forever apart from him. Even hell, in my opinion, is an expression of God's love. If he's going to let you choose not to be a part of his family... But he's got to create a place where he's not because you said you don't want to be with him. And by definition, where he's not is hell. If he's the source of all good things, if you remove the source of all good things, what do you have left? No good thing. Sounds a lot like hell to me. So even hell to me is an expression of God's love because he said, I love you enough, I want you to choose to be in a relationship with me, but if you don't, I've created a place for you. I'm not going to make you be with me. That's what he does. You can choose, I can choose, whoever can choose to live outside the love of God. But that's a choice we make and we just need to know there are consequences to that. And the consequence is you've got a cap on your, not just that you're going to hell, that's a big one, but in this life you've got a cap on the bottle. And you're not going to get very far in loving other people no matter how much you want to. Because it's just not in you to continue. You read that. It's just not in you to always be patient. It's just not in you to always be kind. It's just not in you to never brag. It's not in you to never keep track when somebody does something wrong. It's not in you to never fail. It's not in you to always trust and always hope and always persevere. 
And that's not a slam on anybody. That's we're, we're limited people. We're broken people. We're fallen people. We're weak people. Those are not weak words, always and nevers. We can't live up to that. So you've got to make a choice. The cap's on or the cap's off. And that's the only way you're going to be able to make it. The only way we're ever going to be able to love, to, it's just a bumper sticker, love God and love people, but the only way you can fulfill the bumper sticker is to live life with the cap off. Letting God love you first so that you can then love other people. This thing with Mary and Martha is interesting. Martha was trying to love other people. She's getting things ready. People are coming. Jesus is coming. I'm being a hostess and I've got to get bread or whatever I make and get the house clean and make sure everybody has a place to sit and everyone's welcome. She's doing good things. Nothing she's doing is wrong. She's being a good hostess. She's doing the right stuff. She's trying to love other people. She wants them to be, feel at home and taken care of. It's nothing no slam on Martha. But what she misses is what Mary was doing, which he, Jesus says is the best thing. Being with him is better. It's kind of like you have to be with him first before you can be with other people. It's the same deal as what we were just talking about. He's the source of love, and you can't love other people until you've first been loved by him and received love from him. You're not going to make it otherwise. We've said that loving people is doing what's best for them regardless of the circumstances. But we don't get to decide what's best. God does. Because he is love. He's the one that decides what's best. That's his deal. And I don't know what's best for you unless I've first heard from him what's best. It's not like uh, I know a bunch of stuff y'all don't know or y'all know a bunch of stuff I don't know and you're not, it's not... It's not like that. It's not that kind of paternalistic thing. Oh, let me show you the way you should. It's none of that stuff. It's God saying, this is what's best. And us walking towards that or helping people walk towards that. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines us because he loves us, which is interesting. If you're a kid, you don't get that. That doesn't seem right. God disciplines us because he loves us. But there's a big difference between discipline and punishment. God never punishes, but he does discipline. And the difference is, even if the consequences are the same, Discipline always has a purpose. It's to make us more like Jesus. Punishment doesn't have a purpose. It's just to feel pain. That's it. As parents, those of you who are parents, you know the difference. You know when you're punishing your kid and you know when you're disciplining your kid. Usually when you fly off at the handle, that's not discipline. That's punishment. You just want them to hurt. Discipline's different. You want that you're, It's redemptive. You're trying to make them better. Teach them something. Put something in them that will make them better people. And that's what God does with us. He's the one that gets to determine what love is, and sometimes love is discipline. If it has a purpose. It's not pain for the sake of pain. It's pain for the sake of progress, to make us more like Jesus. And some of you in your life are undergoing discipline. He says he disciplines everyone he loves. So you can consider it a sign of God's love for you if you feel like you're being disciplined in your life. You might think you're being punished, but you're not. There's always a purpose. It's to make you more like the Lord. He has a purpose in the discipline. And what you need to do and what I need to do when that's happening is we need to receive it and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to do in my life? And I do that because I want to get through it as quick as possible, not because I'm a great guy. I just want it to be over. So teach me quick. Whatever the shortest time is, that's what I want because I want to get through it. I think that's okay. If that's where you are, if you're being disciplined, realize that that in itself is an expression of the love of God. You know all this stuff.
This is I'll, you guys can come back up. This is what I'll say as we close. I think that we do not anyone individually, but as Christians, we do have a PR problem, and the root of our problem is that we don't really do a good job here, Leslie, of loving other people. We just don't. And I think a lot of it, I don't think it's that we're mean. I think it's just we don't think about it. We don't intentionally and consciously say, I'm going to do what's best for fill in the blank. Even with people who we're very close to, who we would say, we to- yes, I love them. We, people who we totally love. I wonder how much time we spend thinking, what would it look like for me to love blank today? When was the last time you said that? God, what would it look like for me to love my husband today? What would it look like for me to love my kids, for me to love my boss, for me to love my employees? What would that look like for me to do today? Then actually try to figure that out and then actually do it. If we just started doing that, it would make a big difference in that perception issue. But even if we don't even worry about that and we say we don't care what people think about us, it's not a big deal. It will make a big difference in you. It will make a big difference in me. I'll become a whole lot more like Jesus if I start saying, God, what would it look like for me to love whoever today, right now? What would it look like? I'm not sure I can get much more like Jesus. Again, if, if, he, if God is love and Jesus is God, everything Jesus did, he did, was loving. So how can I be more like him than if I try and strive to make everything I do come out of love. And I don't think that's this big lofty thing that we can never attain. Read the Gospels. Jesus was very earthy, practical. It's not a bunch of lofty, ancient wisdom. It's nitty-gritty patience and kindness and things like that. So we're going to pray. We're going to worship for a bit. This would be my encouragement to you. Uh, as we go, would be if if you if there's someone who you're thinking of in your circle who you're struggling to love, and just be real about that. If there's someone in your circle who you're struggling to love, I would say take today and just and just confess that to the Lord. God, it's really hard. He already knows. It's really hard for me to love this person. I need your grace to help me love them, starting whenever you're going to see it, today, tomorrow, whatever when you're going to see them again. If you want people to pray with you, we'll have some folks up front. We'll pray with you about anything. We'll pray with you about that. But just, this is a very, there's nothing really super spiritual about this. Love God, love people. To me, loving God is easier than loving people. So that's where we're going to focus. Y'all can stand and we'll pray. guess, Lord, all of it kind of comes to this. Everything that we've talked about over the past uh, couple of months comes to today. Because ultimately, um, if we're going to be conformed into your image, Jesus, then we're going to have to be people who love people because that's what you did. And so um, we, we really can't make that happen. And so, Father, I just pray now that uh, you would empower us by your spirit to love other folks. God, I pray particularly for those who, in their immediate circle, in their close group, they've got somebody that's difficult to love. I pray that you would um, release grace.
for them to love those folks. You say uh, that love covers a multitude of sins, and I pray that uh, the love that we extend to people who are difficult to love would cover those sins, God, that our actions towards them would cover those sins and would enable us to reestablish a healthy relationship. God, I pray again that you just come now as we worship, that you would, we would receive from you the great source of love and that would enable us to love others. In Jesus' name. Thank mm-hmm. you.